The reviews are in and Secrets is a hit. Listeners have described Secrets as priceless information, a personal cheat sheet, and binge-worthy career advice. And season three promises to bring you even more secrets on how to advocate for yourself, how to become a better ally, and how to get that coin. Your hosts, Keith Powell and Ricky Robinson, put in that work to reach the top of corporate America. And this groundbreaking podcast challenges you, as well as corporate America, to be better and do better. KP and PR will bring you more tips and tricks on how to advance in your career. So fill up those cups and welcome to season three. So, Ricky, how you doing, my friend? What's going on today? Oh, man. Hey, you know what, KP, man? I'm feeling pretty good. You know, I was driving around in Big Red. I know everybody think Big Red probably don't have a radio or none of that stuff, man. But I was actually driving around the other day, listening to XM Radio, and the song by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five came on, man. That song called The Message. Man, I, I'm bobbing to it now as I'm thinking about it. I want to say, don't push me because oh, so I'm, I'm close, close to too. the edge. Yeah. I'm trying not to lose my hair. But then the part that got me was when he's like, it's like a jungle. Sometimes it makes me wonder how it's going on. And it reminded okay. me, man, it just reminded me about how hard it is to keep your head on straight with all of the nonsense and the tomfoolery that we have to deal with on a daily basis. Yeah, no, no doubt. I, I agree with you. And, you know, I know some of our younger listeners out there may not know that song that you're talking about because <laughs> it was an ice cube, but Diddy that first made that song, you heard those, you heard those tracks, but it wasn't <laughs> the original version. You know what I'm saying? In fact, that was the jam back in the day. And that song, was so in your face back then when you think about it, but it told the truth about what everyone had to face, you know, who was disadvantaged by this system of oppression and the hurdles that we have to overcome as Black people. I mean, and those wasn't even like, and we're not even talking about the small hurdles. We're talking about high hurdles. You know what yes. I'm saying? Like the yeah. high hurdles, right? You got to <laughs> get to a real good running start. But we all know that it is a struggle out here for the brother man in this world. So today we're going all in on the tips, tricks, and secrets as we see them. You know, the struggle is being televised, okay? We see it every day, and it is not an illusion, a delusion, or a game. This shit is real out here. It's real. It's real. And, hey, Secrets listeners, we told y'all we were going to bring some heat in Season 3, and today we're going to be talking with the Fortune 50 executive, Mr. D. John Jackson, and John's newly released book that just came out called What About Me? Walking the Tightrope as a Black Man in America. And he also has a new documentary that's called What About Me? that explores the unheard and untold stories of Black men and boys in America. So, John, welcome to Secrets. We're so happy to have you here, my brother. Thank you so much. My pleasure to be here with you, gentlemen. So, so look, welcome, John. And thanks to our brother and publicist, Taru Brooks. You know, and that brother connected us. He made this happen. So we really want to thank him, you know, for this. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Again, welcome, uh, John. We're about to get into this. So in this episode, we will talk with John about his path to the top and his pursuit of outside passions. We will also discuss the inspiration for his book and documentary and some of the key messages within it. We'll provide some receipts on the challenges and tightrope walking required by Black men. And we'll close out, as we always do, with some secrets on what you can do to support Black men. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be a great episode today. And again, welcome, John. And we always like to start out our interviews by getting to know our guests a little bit better. I'll give a a part of your official bio (laughs) to jump in, and then you can just add a little flavor, a little color. So Mr. D. John Jackson is a Fortune 50 executive in strategic planning, engineering, data science, and artificial intelligence. So this brother's smart, (laughs) so you don't have to worry about him. (laughs) He got it. He's also an author, a film producer, a futurist, a lecturer, and a motivational speaker. So I don't even know where you have time in the day to do all this stuff, John, but... It's amazing. And you also founded 5J Entertainment, which is a multimedia company focused on bringing positive images of African-Americans into our world. So 
hey, this brother got it going on, Secrets listeners. So it's going to be fun today. So, John, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Where did you grow up? What life was like for you growing up as a black man, black boy? What was that like for you? It was a typical life growing up as a kid. You know, we had a lot of family, had a lot of support, community. I guess some people would say the hood, growing up in the hood. But, you know, we didn't see it as a hood. We saw it as that camaraderie. You know, a lot of my formative years were spent growing up in Memphis, Tennessee. And, you know, I learned a lot of things there. Had a lot of great support, great leaders. But then again, I had a chance to see some of the other side of what's going on, how people struggle and how they experience. But the biggest part of it and the most profound pieces to me during that time was what my parents taught me. Be respectful. Treat everybody right, regardless of race, color, creed, socioeconomic status, gender. Do the right thing and always you know, seek to help out somebody. Have big dreams, have big goals. But whatever you do, whatever you achieve, don't forget where you came from. And I think that was just so important. But uh, yeah, growing up, it was just a regular kid trying to have fun, doing the things that kids do. But having an eye to the differences in communities and how things were done and maybe some experiences that seem to be a little bit off track and not knowing how to explain them at the time. But as you grow older, you figure it out. Different swimming pools and how things were done, different parks, how they you could go to certain parks or got looked at a little differently in certain places. And so all those things you know, went into who I am today. And it's crazy how, how you talk about it and you've been able to kind of compartmentalize some of these things. And we're talking about going to different pools and areas that you weren't supposed to be in. It's like you just grew up and that's just part of like we're talking about some of those hurdles, but that kind of strengthened you to be who you are today. So as Keith and I know, being a brother in corporate America, and I know people might think we're putting a lot on it, but it's hard. Okay. Like we don't talk about a lot of the stuff that goes on outside of work, <laughs> you know, and some of the things, these the many faces that we have to kind of put on. Climbing that ladder is like a journey. And it's like, you climbing it with your arms, you climbing it with every finger, with your feet, like you're doing all of this stuff. So if you can, brother, just talk to us a little bit about what that journey was like for you. Can you talk about some of those difficult moments you faced and how you were able to overcome them? Yeah, I think the biggest thing was, you know, my parents said, listen, you do have to be three, four, five, 10 times better and sometimes 20. So just know that and be prepared that you'll be looked at differently. The other side of it was going through corporate America and different companies, you know, not the company I work with now, but just that whole process from university and all these kind of things. You had to be better than most people. And the expectations were when people looked at you that you didn't amount to much. And if you did, it was a fluke. And there was always this next step, you proving yourself, proving yourself. And the other part of it, the traditional mentorship that most people talk about, you know, I didn't have that traditional mentorship. Fortunately, there were some, I would say, divinely placed people along the way that gave me words of wisdom and looked out for me, but nobody plotted that path out. You know, some I've heard people talk about you come into companies and they plot your path out and do this, do this, and then the next thing you know, you're at the top. That didn't happen. So what I had to do is pretty much scratch and find make sure that my skills were top-notch, make sure that everything that I did was, like they say, check your work twice, check your work 10 times. Everything you say, everything you do, take a few nanoseconds, think about it. And even with that, you know, there were experiences where things were said and done that you're like, wow, this is not right. And I think that's why you start to feel and embody this, wow, this is a challenge. Wherever I go, whatever I do, seems like it's just not quite good enough or either it's looked at with a discerning eye to say, hmm, hmm, what is that person up to? What is this story? And it just always seemed like I was somewhat of an enigma. People would find out ways to ask me questions or assume certain things. I'll give you one, just a snippet, just to show you how it was. I was a young engineer early on doing electronic design. That was an advanced technology group. And I had a gentleman say, well, I don't know what you drink in your neighborhood. <laughs> but we're going to have a little cookout this weekend. And yeah, I, I remember the guy's name, what he looked like. I could describe him. That's been years and years ago. Did but you he, tell him you, did you, you drink in your neighborhood? 
Did you tell me he was gonna bring some Kool-Aid to the cookout? Some Kool-Aid or some Henny, some <laughs> some you some Kool-Aid. Like, you know, I guess that's what he thought, gin and juice or, <laughs> or to this day, at this age, I still remember that I was a young guy. First, I, gosh, I was a year out of school, maybe not even a quite a year out of school, but People had get togethers, you know, they would do crawfish boils and this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I said, Oh, what are we gonna bring? What are we gonna bring? I don't know what they drink in your neighborhood. That's hilarious. That's yeah, hilarious. That, that, I, yeah, I didn't even put that one in the book, but I was like, man, but that was one that was funny now that I think back about it. But I was offended, you know, as I thought about it. This guy was indignant when he said it. So, and he sat on the other out again. We were in this group called Advanced Technology, and he was on the other side of our cube and Anyway, funny stuff, man. Funny that stuff. is. I know Ricky and I feel this just in terms of feeling like you have to constantly prove yourself and show that you belong and, and those types of things. And you talked a little bit about this experience and being the first year out of school. So where did you go to school? We didn't talk about that a little earlier. I'm just curious if you were even challenged on your credentials, you know, getting the job. <laughs> you know, I went to a PWI and that was an interesting thing there in engineering classes. Typically the only one, typically always a challenge. I do have a story in the book about a couple of the challenges, but the professors always seem to question your work, always seem to question how you did certain things. Or if they're, you know, I talk about partial credit and reasoning through certain things. Seems like your answers were always cut short. So to give you an example, you raise your hand and everybody tells you that no question is a dumb question. No question is a, you know, you're trying to get, and you get that feeling of getting snapped up Mm -hmm. and shut down really quickly. I lived through that. I lived through that. And I lived through trying to explain, well, this is what I meant in my process and working these problems. This is what I was able to do. And, And, you know, I won't even get into some things. You pledge a fraternity and, you know, one of your professors sees you. It's like his facial expression was, preposterous it just you know (laughs) and i'm not you know it's one of those things you guys know about pledging and this kind of thing but in that process as a young man i'm going through the process and it was like and what we dressed in it was like preposterous this is just preposterous so it was just again the reality that our lives were different and the things that we went through and again like being on a campus of pwi at that time the only black fraternity it just had a lot of social things that we had to deal with. But we we stuck together, we overcame, and you had to learn the ropes. And that was with tests, that was with performance in the classroom, that was in lectures, that was in labs. You knew that just doing enough was not good enough. And when you didn't make the mark or you were a little bit lower, it was almost confirmation. Oh, well, that's what I'd expect from you. And then you got to come back and double up and says, no, don't expect that. It's got to be better. And then that's, oh, well, that seems to be flukish. How did you get that answer? (laughs) (laughs) Now you cheated. You didn't cheat it. How did you you get that answer? And show your work. Now they ask you to show your work. work. And and for our listeners, I just want to make sure as John is talking about a PWI, just for some of our other listeners out there, it's predominantly white institution. Okay. So that meant more than 50% of the uh, population of that school was white. We completely understand that struggle. And when you think about talk calling like a school institution, PWI, I mean, hell, that's like talking about the workforce. <laughs> you know like, that's like talking about the workforce now. So, but again, we're talking about, and some of these things that you talk about in the book and some of these things that you're talking about now, these aren't even microaggressions. You know what I mean? This is like macro and what you're going to do about it. You know, I said it. Now what? I just give you guys another like study groups. (laughs) You know, we stuck together. The little cohort of us that stuck together, man, we said by hook or crook, we're going to solve these problems. You know, everybody always says take home tests are great. No, take home tests can be a a death nail because you're trying to come together. You know, you you sign all these documents, you know, you will not cheat. No. And so you're trying to hold up to it. And we did. But you could have study groups. But it was very understood. There were certain study groups that, man, you were just off limits. You you couldn't ask them a question. They kept everything close to the best. And, you know, we did the best we could. That's what we could. And we, we made it through. But, boy, there were some interesting days and nights 
where, you know, you'd have a 20 problem take home test and you see these guys and they were out, you know, doing whatever, playing lacrosse or whatever they do. And it's like, man, you guys finished? Oh, yeah, we finished that. Really? Uh, all 20? All 20. <laughs> all 20 problems? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> and then they come back, did you, guys, did you guys finish? And we're like, uh, not quite. And we're like, man, we're on problem six. Gosh, out of 20. So, you know, it was that kind of thing. And we just learned that we had to overcome. And that was part of the perseverance of figuring it out. It's part of life. Yeah. yeah. Hey, it took a village to get through B-School. So I, I feel you because we, we were always together. Just always, trying to figure it out. Trying to together. figure it out. It's like yeah. we all go get through here together. Hook or crook, like you said. Yeah. And Ricky and I talk a lot about finding your passions kind of inside and outside of work, right? And we mentioned earlier some of the things that you do outside of your J-O-B, which is pretty terrific stuff. So how are you able to find your voice? After, you know, some of the experiences you just had and climbing the corporate ladder, how are you able to find your voice and decide this is who I am? You know, I think a lot of things have always been in me due to the insights of my parents and the way they talk to me. I laugh about it. I, I think I maybe even mentioned in the book, you know, my dad talked to me like I was 25 and I was probably six. And my mom always flew <laughs> the edges. He was like, you know, he wasn't military, but he talked to me like A, B, C, D, hut, hut, hut. He was being serious because he was looking around the corner, but my mother smoothed the edges, but she came right behind him. So you always kind of knew there was some passion in you to do something. And they would tell me, you've been born with some skills and things. You got to be able to bring people together. I remember my mom said, you know, bring people together. You know, that's what it's about. So as you go through these, these experiences that I've had, the good, bad, ugly, and different, I would ask myself, man, why is this happening to me? Why do people treat me this way? Why am I done this way? And then I realized, you know, some years ago, I said, wow, these are learnings. These are lessons for me. And I started to say, well, I've got to help some people. I've got to reach back and maybe help some people navigate this and have strength and persevere. I know for me, my faith and who I am, you know, a lot of praying, a lot of praying through every school, you know, engineering school, B school, every other kind of school, every secondary, everything. But then realizing that, hey, it's not all about me. It's not all about me. And then talking to many different individuals who are like, I mean, just really in dire straits. And then having the opportunity over the years, you know, I'd mentor and I'd talk to folks and it actually worked. And I was like, this is my voice. I've got to pour back into people what my parents poured into me. And now the deal is to figure out what's the format and the medium. And so I said, here we go. This is what we're going to do. Well, cool, man. Look, you keep mentioning this book, and I know some of our listeners are going to be like, man, what, what book, what book, what book? So this leads me to the book. What about me walking a tightrope as a Black man in America? So first off, that's some fire, right? Like, yeah, right. I mean, I know that they probably came back to you and said, can you soften that up a little bit, you know, or something like that, right? We know how they get. So I love that title because it does feel like Black men are always walking a tightrope in the society that we live in, right? So first and foremost, y'all check out this book, right? This brother put some, he put his foot in this, right? So in this, you share stories and lessons from your own personal journey to provide inspiration to Black boys and men whose voices often go unheard. Can you tell us about, number one, tell us how you came up with the title, right? But can you also tell us about the inspiration for the book and what was the key message that you wanted readers to get from it? The biggest thing I wanted to do from the book is to encourage, to educate, and to enlighten and inspire. Mm-hmm. And that, it kind of goes in that order. Maybe I would put educate first because a lot of people don't know what we go through or what we've experienced. And so what I wanted to do is harness the feelings I had from, like I said, the good, bad, ugly, and indifferent, but really the ones that were ugly, the ugly experiences, because I wanted to leverage that and turn those into a strength. And I wanted to say, if I've gone through those things, I'm pretty sure there are others who've gone through it. And I want to pour that out and let not only the folks that I'm trying to help, but let other folks know that these things that are going on might not call them atrocities in the truest sense of the word, but the way people are being treated is truly, truly just unacceptable. And so I said, how can I package this up in a manner 
to capture everyone's attention, but also then to invoke some thought and introspection. Hence, walking the tightrope. Walking the tightrope is my personal feeling. I feel I even walk the tightrope to this day. And you're right. My publisher was like, wow, well, walking the tightrope. Wow, okay. Mm, that, that's good. And, you know, one of my editors was like, maybe it's about living your life. And it was very much so softened. And I was determined that I was going to stick with that because my gut feel and my experience is that when you read the book, it is a tightrope for me. I am balancing. I have been balancing since a little kid going to camp, share their stories, not in the book, going to camp in the summer and probably in the sixth or seventh grade. And, you know, you have camp supervisors and all these kind of things. You're like really happy, go lucky with all the kids, you know, all the little black kids and all the little kids and everything. So you feel like, hey, there is a degree of trust. And I know that I was out running. uh, We were doing something, whatever. And I fell and got this huge cherry on my knee. You guys know if you guys have played ball, football, everything, Mm -hmm. just took the skin off. And I was Mm -hmm. like, oh, my gosh. So (laughs) the guy, the first day, you know, publicly, he was like, oh, yeah, I'll take care of that. And he put a bandage on it. And for whatever reason, it came off. I had to go to the office and he was sitting in there and I said, hey, so-and-so, I didn't, I'm not going to call his name. This guy's probably dead now or very old. I said, hey, my leg, it needs to, the bandage needs to be clean. And he turned on me and snapped and was like, you probably don't need anything on it anyway. Why are you bothered? I mean, whether he was having a bad day or not, he snapped. He spun around this chair. Because, you know, we're on first name basis. We would say, the guy's name's not Gary. Hey, Gary, I need a new bandage. And he spun around me. You know, it was like the the exorcist. He spun around on me. I never forgot that feeling. I never asked him for anything else. Mm -hmm. And I I said, wow, how could he talk to me like that? Total disrespect. Total disrespect. So from that point on, as you go, like I said, whether it's university, you start to get to drive, you start to go to work you realize that there are a lot of people who are pulling for you, but then there are a lot of people who are pulling against you. And then you start, this is where this mental aspect of for black men, you start to grapple with how do I survive? You know, I got folks I know who are laying traps for me. I got folks who are pulling for me. I do this one day or I do what I see the standard is and the norm, and that's not good enough for me. So I got to do something different. So how do you balance it? When you read the book, you'll see the whole metaphor that I talk about with that tightrope. And there's some more that you add to it because it's not only just a tightrope. That's just (laughs) if you're up there, you're up there. But then think about the external environment and all the other things. And I I give somewhat of an analogy or metaphor to wrap around it. And that's how I feel. Hey, look. I just need to say, I love the title of the book. I mean, when I was reading some of the stories, I'm like, damn, is he talking about my, was he a a fly on the wall? Like talking about stuff that I'm going through Keith and I, we've been talking about this and we've been just excited to know that we were going to be speaking to you because this book, whether you actually know it or not, I'm telling you, it resonates with a lot of people, you know, it resonates with black men mothers who are raising black boys, biracial relationships, and they have kids who identify as black. Like this is deep. And I would say people who ain't black, it kind of like peels the onion back and lets them kind of see, you know, what we really, you know, have going on. But at the end of the day, we still show up and show out. That's right. We still got to be there. (laughs) You still got to be there. You got to perform. You got to know your stuff. You got to do your thing. No excuses, no pity party. No victims. You got to still rise and be victorious. I'll share this. I had a lady from Toronto, Canada, and I've had so many calls, a lady from Dubai, but the lady from Toronto, Canada, she said, this book is not only for black men and boys and black women, it's for everybody. And she took a picture and she says, I'm a white lady and I learned things I never even thought about. And so that goes into the strategic vision of trying to educate everybody and let you know this happens. And if you didn't know, you ought to know. And if you know, and it's going on and you're, you condone it, you know, it's not acceptable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. As we mentioned, 
we want y'all to go out and buy this book, support this brother, because <laughs> the book is good. It, it's good. And it's it was a quick read for me. I, went, I, I just started reading and didn't want to put it down. But again, I felt like you were speaking right to my experience also. Right. You know, as a black man in America, it, it was great. It was really great. And as you just talked about, I mean, you talk about this is a balancing act and black men have so much coming after them from so many different angles. We'll speak specifically just about one passage in the book that kind of struck me in chapter four, which is actually called Walking the Tightrope. Mm-hmm. I just want to read this passage just to provide some more color on what you were getting at and also then have you respond to it. In the passage, you said, there are people anticipating my failure and looking for flaws or missteps so I can't make a mistake. There are people with high expectations and expect me to be infallible so I cannot make a mistake. People are watching and depending on me so I cannot make a mistake. People are following in my footsteps so I cannot make a mistake. Telling you, man, like golly. I just kept reading that over and over and over again because I'm just like, this is my life. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I spent a long, a lot of nights writing that and trying to craft it right into the most impactful for the reader, but also pouring my heart and soul into it. (laughs) And I'm glad it's resonating because that's exactly the way I feel. You got people in your corner. And it's like going to the Olympics. Don't you mess up? <laughs> you got that. Right. And then you got people like, yeah, we're going to make sure you mess up. And then you got people who are like, oh, I aspire to do what you do. I'm looking up to you so you can't mess up. And that, and that covers a lot of things. You know, don't go out and screw it up. Don't screw up a good thing. How do you navigate and play chess knowing that things are designed to keep you blocked? And then how do you live up to maybe some expectations that exceed who you are, but people are pulling for you. And that's why I give those examples in the book. But one of the examples that I don't give in the book is, you know, one of my experiences some years ago where a guy walks up to me and I know people are like, man, this guy's making this up, or I would have done this, or I would have done that. And I said, yeah, hold on. You, you got to realize how, what, what the stakes are, what's on the table. But this guy asked me, he says, it was after a meeting, after a discussion, and he comes up to me and says, well, I was wondering if there was more to you than just that suit. Walk right up to my face, indignant as hell. And he said that I, I can see the guy's face right in front of me now. I was like, where did that come from? And you know, what do I do? You got to be witty enough because, yeah, I know most people would want to go Mike Tyson, go ballistic and do some things. Well, that's not going to work out well for you. And then that's going to put you back. So how do you craft a response? So I come back with something witty. Yeah, you'd be surprised what you can find in suits uh, if you look hard enough. So, you know, you got to do like that. Because you've got to suppress that part of you. you know, I told you, you know, when you, when you grew up, you're like, wait a minute, what you say? You know, so it's yeah. very easy to let that come out. So then here you go. You got to say, wow, this guy just said that to me. How dare he say that to me? Interesting that you said that because, you know, Keith and I talk about, you know, having constraint, right? And being able to like, eloquently like slay people like with your words, you know, to be able to be able to do that. And when now, when you know in your heart of hearts, what you just heard was some slick shit, okay? That was some slick tonsils right yeah. there. And it's like, and they're waiting on you. The people do this on social media. They do this out loud, and they're waiting to break you. And soon as, as soon as you jump out of characters, got them or mm-hmm. got her, you know, it's something like that. So, look, I hope that after you wrote this passage, you just, because this is like a mic drop, you just dropped the pen. You sat back and crossed your legs for a minute, maybe smoked a cigar, had your little drink and say, yeah, I got the asses with this one. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Because that was powerful, man. So this chapter was so impactful because it so succinctly like breaks down the experiences of black boys and men. And again, I think about myself. I think about, you know, my nephew did not raise like my son here. And you describe how black men are walking the tightrope when it comes to how we dress, how we talk or speak, what our hair looks like, how you represent yourself, and the infamous talk, how you deal with law enforcement. And I'm I'm thinking like even just recently when we're talking about like the verdict with the Derek Chauvin verdict came, and I remember being in a meeting and I was telling uh, some of my uh, coworkers, hey, you guys, 
I'm done, you know, with the meeting. Like, I can't even focus. I need to do roll call and find out where my kids are, right? I need to find out where, what's going on with them and say, you need to get straight home. I know you guys are celebrating everything else, but everybody's not happy about this verdict. Why don't you just go on back to the dorm room, you know, and do what you need to do? What do you want others, you know, John, to understand about the experiences of Black men and boys, like, specifically? I would say that, Black men and boys fall under a different level of scrutiny than any other race on the face of this earth. Does not matter if they're a young attorney, a young banker, a young investment banker, if they're a high school student, you know, they could even be a 12-year-old kid. The eyes of a law in this country sees that 12-year-old kid, not like other races, sees that kid as a man and treats that kid as a man. And so one of the things I've always tried to do, and I will throw this in, you know, we we have two sons and a daughter, and I'm always cognizant of their experiences. And I always share this, doesn't matter your, your progeny, your pedigree, and all these kind of things, what you are, who you are. A lot of times that gets lost when people do these harsh things to people, especially for something as minor as a traffic stop. So what I would want to say is that that preconceived notion about black men and boys typically supersedes whatever you may have accomplished or whatever you may have done, which leads to could lead to your demise in a very, very quick way. And it shouldn't have happened that way. And the example I talk about is that in my neighborhood where I live, you know, I'd run out now, it's past dark. I'll put a hoodie on. Let me go put a hoodie on and start running. All it takes is one phone call and I'm running with my hoodie. And yeah, I know most of these people, they know me, but I'm running in that hoodie. And what ends up happening is that that could turn you know, tragic because I could get indignant. I get a little older now, I could get indignant. Wait a minute, I live here, I do this. And, and so that's what I try to get across that there's a different standard. And to let you know that I'm not making this up, and I don't know if I mentioned this to you guys before, probably about, oh, six months before COVID, took effect. I leave, I go work out. I leave my house at like 4.40 in the morning for a 5.15 class. I leave, I'm driving, got my car, leave my neighborhood. And all of a sudden I see this silhouette behind me. And you know what that silhouette is? I'm like, man, where did he come from? And I'm driving. I says, okay, just drive the speed limit before you get on the interstate, do what you got to do. And all of a sudden the blue lights come on. So the blue lights come on and I'm like, ah, man. Okay. So let me pull over. And uh, the guy says, oh, how are you doing? I said, I'm doing fine. And, you know, I do my best Brian Gumble. And here's something else I tell folks. People <laughs> kind of get mad when I say this. You know, you got to wear so many hats. And people say, man, I just, I'm just who I am. I, you know, no. Sometimes you got to be smarter. So I tell my kids, do your best Brian Gumble, And you get home and we can take care of something goes wrong. But I'm doing that myself. I'm doing my best Brian Gumble. Hello, officer. What can I do? That? Well, we had reports that an African-American was breaking in the cars. And I saw you leave out of here and I was like, wow, okay, well, I live XXX, this is my car, XXX. And he says, oh, okay, okay. And he, you know, he's looking at my car. And I said, well, by the way, I'm a concerned citizen. What did the man look like? And he said, well, uh, African-American about six feet with dreadlocks. <laughs> you must have just got your haircut. You must no, have no, no, just right. I, 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 <laughs> I either pulled it off and threw it in the back seat or whatever. And he, no, okay, sir. Okay, sir. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. But my point is, is that I could have snapped or said something and then he called for backup and then it goes. But again, guy sees me come out of the neighborhood. Like I said, I go every morning. So it's just one of those things like that. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing I give you, I'm driving my car. This is broad daylight. This is like, 11 o'clock in the morning and I get pulled over and the guy says, so who owns this car? And my, my comment was, well, what did I do? Well, you, you exceeded the speed limit back there. We clocked you. He says, who owns this car? I said, I do. Well, okay. Just that question. Who owns this Mm -hmm. car? So those are the kind of things that for black men and black boys, I say, okay, that's a part of walking a tightrope. So you have to be smarter because those things happen. And what you have to do is think about that in advance, which is more mental pressure on us to have to be proactive on thinking about what to say and do when you're like, well, I shouldn't have to do that. 
But I think you have to do that. And then once you put those things, kind of your game plan in your head, what you should do then is say, here's what I'll do if this happened. Parents need to teach their little boys, your nephews, your cousins, play the game until you can get to home turf. And then once you do that, you're better prepared to fight your case. But you can't fight your case or adjudicate your case in the streets because you'll lose every time. Yeah, you're out there by yourself. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you, you're out there to, to the whims of whatever. Yeah. You, you know, at the end of the day. So look, man, this conversation to begin with has just been like incredible. And, you know, I think even in our pre-discussions, man, we end up talking forever. Right. But what I want to do here is because sometimes people think like, again, John, I know you listen to the show. Sometimes people think we're making this stuff up. You know what I'm saying? And, and what we like to do in this part of the, the show is we like to start out with like some of these receipts, you know, because, again, the receipts are if we didn't have these receipts and some of these statistics, we wouldn't have secrets, you know. So today what we're going to um, be able to do in terms of summarizing some receipts, we've heard John's story. And you may be saying to yourself that his experience may or may not be the experience that most black boys and men face. Let's put any doubt to rest by sharing a few receipts with you. So KP, why don't you just hit them with the first receipt? Yeah, I hit you with the first one. So the Bureau of Labor Statistics in a recent survey showed that black men have the highest unemployment rates of any race or gender group and the lowest labor force participation and employment rates among men. And in fact, black male participation and employment rates are just a bit higher than those of black women while white and Latino men work more than women in each group, right? And to pile on, a further research study by Chetty and other researchers showed that Black men experience less upward and more downward mobility over time relative to their parents than any other race or gender group in the U.S. So, again, this is part of the tightrope at the end of the day, right? We're at the bottom of the totem pole. <laughs> right. And I will tell you guys, my suggestion, what I always tell first and foremost, African-American men or black men and black boys, but also our women, because I do have a daughter and I encourage her, you know, you matter. You're, you're valued. You are special regardless of what anybody says. And, and I think if you're in the entertainment industry, banking industry, corporate America, wherever, you know, you got to reach out and have those partnerships and stick together. I know people talk about the crab mentality and it is alive and well. Everybody's trying to figure out. But if you stick together and work together, I think that's important because you have to become astute in the spaces that you operate in. People will play you against each other, black man against a black woman. Those dynamics play out. It's strange. You know, we'd have to have another show to talk about how sometimes those things get crafted. But I would just say togetherness and being able to come together, work together and look to make things better for all. And then I would tell mothers and fathers, you know, love you, love your black boys and, and love your your black men. You know, again, it's kind of like people see us as, I don't know, gladiators or centurions, mm -hmm. always in battle, never need any care or concern. And a lot of us don't show that side of us because we've been taught, you know, you got to be hard all the time, be hard. But mm -hmm. you know what? I tell you, being hard all the time takes its toll on you. When you're trying to burden all of these things, keep it all bottled up in you. And I totally believe, you know, good friend Todd Belcor in Chicago talks about these, the mental damage that's done. These things that you build up inside, I think they manifest themselves as physical maladies, hypertension, blood pressure, stroke, heart disease, diabetes, all of these things, you know, notwithstanding that you, you know, got to eat right and got to exercise. I understand that kind of thing. But if you add the pressures on top of it, and you do all those things together, sure enough, it's going to affect us. So I would just say, listen, we got to love ourselves and love each other. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's like outstanding, outstanding feedback, you know, and advice there, which kind of dovetails into receipt number two for us. In a recent Brookings Institute piece, Arthur Harry Holzer, he attributes the plight of Black male unemployment to several factors, including lower education, skills and work experience, discrimination, health disparities, and higher incarceration rates. So again, we're not making the stuff up, you know, like just what John was just talking about in terms of some of those factors that end up having health issues, you know, attributing to those as well. There's some other stuff, you know, there too. So the finding and receipt number two tells us that. 
Yeah. And that incarceration rate is real, Ricky. And that kind of leads us into receipt number three. So let me drop a couple on you. So around 2.5% of the U.S. Black male population was in prison by the end of 2016. Mm. 18 and 19 year old black males are 11.8 times more likely to be incarcerated than white males belonging to the same age group. And black males 65 and over are 4.4 times more likely to be incarcerated than white males belonging to the same age group. So while black and Hispanic comprise about 32% of the overall U.S. population, they account for 56% of the U.S. prison population in 2015. So Mm -hmm. if blacks and Hispanics shared the same incarceration rate as whites, the prison population would decrease by 40 percent. Oh, God. Now, look, Keith, I mean, you I know you're the finance man. This is what you do, man. But this don't take rocket science to kind of figure out the fine print effery, you know, right? right? (laughs) You know, like, golly. That's, that's crazy, man. But I it gets back to what John was talking about, you know, just being pulled over, yeah. you know, by a cop. Just that one innocent interaction could in, lend you to be in jail. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember getting pulled over one time with the kids in the car. This Big Red back in the day. I'm like, Big Red can't go that fast. OK, <laughs> I'm in the slow lane and the cop is speeding behind me. And I'm like, oh, let me pull over. Let him get to where he needs to be. This joker pulls up behind me. I'm like, oh, Lord. So little man is in the car. Well, he was little back then. He's 6'1 now. He's like, we're going to jail. I'm like, hey, you guys, don't say anything. Like, we got Christmas gifts in the back of the truck. We got all of this stuff. And my man says, you know why I pulled you over, right? And I say, absolutely not. He's like, you're speeding. As cars are zipping past him and he's losing his balance. And he's trying to, like, really egg me on in front of the kids. So I'm like, look, man. If you're going to give me the ticket, please just give me the ticket. I don't need you to try to embarrass me any further, you know, than what you're doing. He's like, oh, well, if you don't show up to court, you you, you know, blah, blah. I'm like, it is my right. Let me get your badge number. OK, let me just write some stuff down. I don't have to sign the ticket. <laughs> like, You know what I'm saying? Like, you can give me the ticket. And I'm like telling a little uh, sister soldier in the back, Cheyenne, don't say nothing. OK, because now she's the militant one. Don't say nothing. But it's that same story where it's like something as simple as that can turn into something else agitating. And we're talking about those stats, Keith. That's scary. Yeah, it's scary. Is. Which gives us receipt number four. In a report by the Joint Economic Committee of uh, Congress titled The Economic State of Black America in 2020, key findings included the unemployment rate for the Black Americans has historically been approximately twice the rate for whites. During the majority of the past 50 years, Black Americans have experienced unemployment rates that, if they were experienced by the entire population, would be seen as recessionary. Further, Black workers have been disproportionately hurt by the overall decline in union membership and the decreasing power of the unions themselves. The typical Black household earns a fraction of a white household, just 59 cents for every dollar with the gap between black and white annual household incomes of about 29,000 per year. So I'll stop with that one. And I know Keith has one more, but do y'all understand why we have secrets? Do y'all understand why we are trying to help you get your bread? Like if everyone actually knew what we was talking to y'all about, they would not be happy. (laughs) You know, this is why we're trying to get you to like, really understand there is a platform for us and we want to make sure that we give this truth to you. So Keith, hit him with receipt number five. Yeah, the last receipt we got for you today, that same report you were just talking about shows that Black Americans are over twice as likely to live in poverty as white Americans. Black children are three times as likely to live in poverty as white children. And the median wealth of Black families, which is $17,000, Did you hear that? The median wealth of black families is $17,000 is less than one tenth that of white families at $171,000 and less than half of black families own their homes, less than half, 42% of black people own their homes compared to almost 75% of white families. And this leads to the generational wealth gap that we're always talking about. 
this is the tightrope <laughs> at the end of the day, right? You're dealing with incarceration rates. You're dealing with this generational wealth gap. You're dealing with all of this noise and external static that you have to deal with, right? This is why the book is so important. Yeah. So we talk about this tightrope. We talk about walking with this tightrope with this elephant on your shoulders. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, don't fall off. Right. So look, man, this has been like so impactful. But, you know, I think what we want to do today is we're, we're just going to hand it over. We're going to hand the mic over to our brother, Mr. D. John Jackson, just to provide some inspiration to our fellow black man on what you can do to support black boys and men. And actually, this feedback or this inspiration is for everybody. But again, John, let's just give the mic to you, brother. Talk to us. Thanks so much. And I will tell you this. First and foremost, as I said in the book, you know, you matter. You are valued because the world tells you things so, so differently. And as you talked about, it is like an elephant on your tightrope. One of the things I'll throw in is that history. Please go and understand and read your history. All the statistics, brothers, that you were giving out, there was an origin to those pieces that got us to this place. And I think it's so important. Maybe we'll talk another time. I, I do a piece on historically what has happened to Black people economically. And I, I tell you, it's one of those things in every aspect of life, not only economically from a job perspective, not only from where we live, redlining and all those things, they have impacted you know, so much of this. So read your history, understand your history, teach that history to your kids. The other thing I will tell you is this, be sure to be astute about the spaces and the locations that you're in. If you're in corporate America, you got to sit back and watch. There's a time to speak. There's a time to listen. And there's a time to have that astute eye to understand what are you navigating and how to discern, you know, just what the nature of folks' intentions are. You know, it's not to say that you don't trust people. You got to trust somebody eventually someday. But you have to be smart enough to figure these things out. The other thing I would do is to seek out people like you. A lot of times we get isolated and that's just the way it works out. Sometimes maybe by design, sometimes it's just the way things work out. You know, you got a brother or a sister over here in this department. Somebody's over here. Nobody ever reaches out and say, can we get together and have a coffee and let's just discuss and compare. I know sometimes there's a bit of taboo. People, I'll say if three or four or five of us get together, it's almost like, oh, watch out, it's a watch meeting or something like that, or it's a call meeting. If you go back and look at the history in the 60s, but I think that's important. And the other thing is, you know, get over the fact of this crab mentality, get over the fact of, hey, well, it's one of me here, and I know there's only going to be one. So, guess what? I guess I need to be the one. As long as we have that mentality, we play into the overall scheme. The other thing I would say is this reach back and help somebody. We got to start helping our little boys, four, five, six, letting them aspire. Listen, I know everybody wants to be LeBron or Kobe or something. There's so many things out there, but there's so many wonderful careers and things where we do not have enough people to do the jobs in this country. We are so far behind. And I think if we could start to pour in that vision and give them the insight. And I know sometimes people say, wait a minute, John, we're just trying to survive. Yeah, I get that. I get that. You got to survive first, but pour vision into these young minds and tap into their intellect. And then let's do some things about getting them in camps, getting them exposed, getting their ideas, breaking the mold and the cycle of you know, where they are. I was so upset some years ago when I met these young kids and they lived in an area and they were like nine and 10 years old and they had never been. There was a river in their town and they had never been to the river, which was probably four miles away because in their their projects or their housing development, they had no way out. So I so said, that's what we got to do is reach back and help these kids and inspire them and provide opportunities to be exposed. And then the last thing I would say is this, you know, we got to check on each other. We've got to realize that although there may be a rough and tough exterior for Black men, and people always say that we're monolithic, you know, we all think like we all do the same. No, we're different. They're great carpenters. They're great bankers. They're great athletes. There are folks who are great attorneys. There are folks who be a great plumber. Whatever it is, we have to reach out and hug each other and then understand that, hey, we're human too. We're human too. We have feelings too. We have ideas. We have creativity. We may be a great artist. We may be a great chef, a great cook. Then let's encourage that as opposed to tearing people down you know, from their aspirations. And if we do those things and start to come together, we may not get all the way to the mountaintop, but it starts to put us on a path where we can leverage our strength. 
economically. And the last thing I'll say is this, financial knowledge. We need to start understanding how money works in our communities and how basic fundamental skills for finances work, whether you you make $15,000 a year, whether you make $5 million a year, but definitely how do we understand the mechanics of money, entrepreneurship, and then what we can do and how we can leverage it. All those things are just passionate to me from history down to everything I just said. And I'm just trying to find the best way to pour this into groups and then work with folks to make it happen because it's more than just talk. It's got to be action. Yeah. There you go. Woo. So, John, earlier in the episode, you dropped the pen. Now you just dropped the mic. So. <laughs> it's smoking. It, that thing is smoking right now. That's right. That's right. Those were some, some great, great secrets for our listeners to hold on to. Again, we really appreciate you being with us today. We got a lot out of this. And again, for our listeners out there, if you want to find more resources on the secrets that John shared, go get his book. <laughs> And you want to hear more about receipts that we shared today, you can go to our website, secrets.com, and look in those show notes because we always have some great resources for you there. Hey, and look, my brother, uh, Mr. Jackson, I'll add my thanks to you as well. Look, we really appreciate you being on the podcast and most importantly, for being a part and joining the Secrets family, man. And let me put it like this to, to our listeners, man. Y'all ain't heard the last from John as we're going to work on some projects together, man. This brother is the T-R-U-T-H, right? So shouts out to all of our listeners and fans out there. You have made all of this possible. And we told y'all that season three was not going to disappoint, okay? And we meant it. And so be sure to write a review on Apple and buy some of that merchandise also. Yeah. And, you know, Ricky and I have a lot of fun on the podcast, but... Again, we always want to help you get what you deserve. Like John just said, getting that coin, being able to manage your money. Mm-hmm. That's what we're all about. So check out our coaching services. we got an online course coming soon because we really want to help you get that coin and get your appropriate seat at the table. And look, man, we want to thank uh, John for, again, for bringing some of them, them gems, some of that hot fire today. Now, look, I've never personally walked a real tight rope before, but I have a feeling that if you put a nice tall cocktail in the other hand, it might inspire me to go out there and give it a try, right? But uh, we're going to fill these cups up and just get back at it, man. So we're just so appreciative. So thanks again for listening to Secrets. And remember, when we share, you transform. Peace. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed yet another gem from KP and PR. In fact, one listener said that Secrets makes me smarter every time I listen, and we hope you agree. If you are motivated and excited after listening to Keith and Ricky, please subscribe to our podcast, share with friends, and donate via Patreon. Check us out on the web at www.secrets.com. That's www.c-crets.com to get more information about our secret services. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.